Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count, will not impute his sin. Father, thank you for preserving your word for us. And thank you that you've promised to illuminate our minds, to open our hearts to its truth. And we would seek that your spirit would do this very work in all of us. Perhaps some here have never come to a saving knowledge of being justified before you because of the work of Christ alone. May today be the day of new birth for them. And Lord, for your children, may we be reaffirmed in this wonderful truth that our position in Christ is forever the same because you have justified us through him. And may we learn this and may we live this and may we lead today with a greater resolve Uh, to live the justified life for the glory of the great King. And we thank you in his name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, we move into chapter 4, and we are going to look at the first eight verses of chapter 4. And Paul would continue his method of rhetorical questioning. And it find in verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? He has used this method before in chapter 2 as well as in chapter 3, and he's doing a transition now. And what Paul laid out in chapter 3, the righteousness of God provided not by works, beginning in verse 21, he now illustrates by two Old Testament characters. This would be very important in his um, attack even, or I should say his addressing of the Jews. Because the Jews were boasting of their privilege, they were boasting of of who they were as God's chosen, the privilege of the law, the privilege of of all those various oracles uh, that they had been given. And so Paul had already uh, dismantled that argument in chapter 2 and chapter 3, but now he'll come back with two of the pillars of the Jewish position to further bring the position uh, before them that no one is justified by works. No one is justified by the deeds of the law. And he would do so by looking at two of the chief characters in the, Jew, in the Jewish argument, and that would be Abraham and David. Abraham and David. In verses 1 through 8 of Romans, we find the exposition of verses 27 and 28 of chapter 3, with Abraham being the example. Paul would say in chapter 3, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then he would go in to chapter 4 with a question in verse 2 about boasting. And he would use Abraham as the positive example of justification by faith. 
a righteousness credited to his account, not because of works, but because of faith in Christ. John Murray, the Scottish uh, theologian, has said this, quote, The appropriateness of appeal to Abraham is conspicuous, for the case of Abraham was the stronghold of the Jewish position, end quote. And so you can understand why Paul would use Abraham, uh, the father, uh, as they would say. But he was not the father just of the Jews. He was the father of faith. And so he would come and use Abraham as the key example of justification by faith alone. And then you also see in verse 6, he would come and use David. David as an example of justification by faith alone. A righteousness imputed. He would say, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not impute or count his sin. So here we have Abraham, who is known as the friend of God, illustrating justification by faith alone. And then we have David, who is the man after God's own heart, equally recognized as the one illustrating justification by faith. Abraham would be the positive, uh, showing that God gives a righteousness that is not owned, earned, I should say. And then David would be the negative, that God would not impute sin. Rightly, that would be his. He would not impute it to him. Now, we're going to come to imputation, the doctrine of imputation in chapter 5, when we look at Adam as the head of, uh, of humanity and we look at Christ, the head of the new creature. And we'll, when we'll look at imputation. Imputation is so important in the Christian life. This doctrine of imputation is how we are to live and understand and enjoy the Christian life. And when it comes to the battle we face every day against the devil, against uh, our own failing conduct, is that the devil can get us to measure our standing with God and get us to measure our quality of our spiritual life by our conduct, we will be defeated Christians. You must live your Christian life out of what we see in Abraham and what we see in David. You must see your Christian life and live your Christian life out of the doctrine of justification, not sanctification. And if you do not do that, then you will be on a roller coaster ride in your Christian experience. Is it justification? Justification, that one-time declaration that God looks at you in a righteousness not your own is what will steady you in the rough seas of an ever-changing experience in the Christian life. Is sanctification will not be the way you measure your Christian experience. Your sanctification will be up and down by failings, many. Ultimately, though, what stabilizes the Christian life is this doctrine that we're looking at now. And Paul would make it a point to establish justification first before he would get even into the practical applications of that later on in the book of Romans. When we get to Romans 6, we're going to see what uh, this looks like in a practical way. But for now, we want to see our position. Because Paul was establishing through Abraham our position as justified people. And if you walk out of here with only one thing, let it be this. Is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been declared in a position before God that will never change. And, and that is the only way to have joy. That is the only way to have stability in your Christian experience. 
Because like I mentioned, if you, if you go by your feelings or go by your experience or go by how you think you're growing or you're not growing, is that you're going to be like those monitors of the heart in a hospital. You're going like this all the time. And, but if, you're, if you live your life justified, like Abraham, believed unto a righteousness not your own, you will be rock solid. You will be stable. And you will put a consistency of your walk with Jesus Christ before a watching world. And so what we want to look at this morning then is two things from Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. One, we want to look at our position declared by God. Declared by God as it was in Abraham, the father of faith. And then we want to look at Abraham and how did he respond to that? How does he respond to what God has declared is true of every believer uh, who has come to Christ for a righteousness not of our own? So then what we have this morning is our position. And tonight, Lord willing, if you come back, we're going to look at Psalm 103 and how does God treat us? How does God treat us because of our position in Christ? And I think you'll find it very encouraging. Now, Romans 4, Romans 4, and let's work our way through this. The first thing we see is there's a repeated word. There's a repeated word in the first eight verses. And it will appear numerous times throughout the book of Romans. And it is, in my translation, it is the word counted. Counted. Other translations have uh, credited or credits or accounted or reckoned or impute, they all mean the same. It appears 11 times in 25 verses, in, verse, in, in chapter 4. It's the most important word in this section. And what it points to is God's act, what God does to the believing uh, sinner who comes to him for this position of righteousness, not of their own. Now, the word itself, counted, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him or reckoned to him or imputed to him. It's a technical word, and it means to charge to an account. To charge to an account, to give credit for. Or it is an asset in someone, not earned by themselves, but freely given and to be attributed to that person. We will see this, as I mentioned in Romans chapter 6, how the imputation of righteousness how the practical giving of a position in Christ is fleshed out. Now, when we read that God counted uh, righteousness unto Abraham, we find that that, ver- or that verb counted, it also applies to Jesus. And again, the imputation doctrine that we will see. In Isaiah 53, 12, we read this, Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was counted or numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, in in Abraham, this is true of every believer. Now, I want you to get a hold of this because this is so liberating. Is that when God looks at you and you have believed in Jesus Christ and his righteousness... And you receive the imputation of his, his, his gift of righteousness to you. This is what you have before God. You have a standing before God that will pass his judgment. You have a standing before God that enables you to fellowship with him. You have a standing before God that will never be rejected from his holy presence. And you have a standing with God that fits you for heaven. And not a single one of those great blessings you earned... Not a single one of those did you do anything to get. 
What you contributed to that is your sin that made Christ necessary to become our propitiation. And so just get, get a hold of that. And I'll talk more about the gift here in a minute. But I want you to get a hold of that for a minute. God has given you something in his son that you desperately need. One, to pass his judgment. Second, to fellowship with him. Thirdly, to, to, that you will be able to be in heaven in his holy presence. It is a righteousness that you cannot earn on your own. And that's the first thing in verses 1 and 2 we see in Abraham. Our declared position before God is not earned by works. And there are way too many people in the world that are trying to ramp up a religious life to gain God's favor. That they are trying to just pow on work after work after work, hoping that at the end of the day, when that judgment day comes, is they've accumulated enough good things that they'll pass that judgment. The Jews were also a people of merit. And that very language that uh, is used where it says that, that, that it was not counted as a gift, but as his due, as his due, that Paul was referring to the Jews, what they call it, the merits, the accumulated merits. Let's read verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For for Abraham were justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, when we read here that he was our forefather, the Jews would have been quick to say, yes, he is. He is our forefather. And that's the argument. We had that argument with Jesus by the Jews. But later on in verse 16 and beyond, we're going to see that Paul says, no, Abraham is not just the father of the Jews. He's the father of faith. He's the father of the Gentiles as well. So Paul is bringing the whole family. As he brought the whole family of humanity into condemnation in the first three chapters, he also brings the whole family or whole humanity under the umbrella of faith, with Abraham being the father of faith. Now this position, what we read in verse 2, it's something uh, that we can't boast of because it is not of ourselves. It is of God. What we need to understand in regards to righteousness that is imputed to us is that our God is a jealous God. He is an extremely jealous God. Jealous in the right way. Is that God will not allow any credit whatsoever to go to man in regards to salvation. In regards to being declared righteous. And you know that. But inwardly with inside of you, if you're a Christian, you still have that inward legal fight. You still have that performance drivenness within you. That there's something in us that thinks we have to contribute something that's just the nature of what we have in the fight of the Christian. And God has declared in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no one. He would say also in Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And when it comes to the glory of salvation, no one will be able to stand in heaven and look to the throne and look to the Lamb standing there and say, I contributed to me being here. I added something to the work that you did. No one can earn this. No one can do anything to gain God's favor on their own. Religiosity is a condemning practice. No one can make it to heaven apart from God declaring a position that you could not earn. Abraham was a good man. Abraham did a lot of good works. I mean, look how he treated Lot. I mean, he is a good man, yet his works were like filthy rags. 
And he understood this. And when it comes to the praise of God in salvation, and the reason why justification by faith is the pillar and the kingpin in which the church stands is because justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, makes God get all the glory alone. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. I'm, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. In Jerry Bridges' book, Transforming Grace, Living Confidently in God's Unfailing Love, he titled the very first chapter, which I thought was just so wonderful, The Performance Treadmill. It's about Christians who get into performance treadmill. Is it, he said this, quote, we are all legalistic by nature. That is, we innately think so much performance by us earns so much blessing from God. End quote. And, and that is true of even us as Christians. Has there not been those periods or maybe those weeks where you, you haven't read your Bible much, you, prayer has gone to the ceiling or it hasn't occurred at all, and you've been overwhelmed by life's many circumstances and trials and stuff, and you just have this deep down inside of you, you hear perhaps this whisper, God must not be pleased with me, or maybe God doesn't love me. There are a number of Christians who struggle with the, with the fact is that, God, that they think God doesn't love them based on their performance. And other times you may have read your Bible every day. You may have told the gospel to five people in five days. You may have prayed and, you know, and the heavens opened up and you may be thinking, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know what that is? That is a you attributing your works to God's favor. He doesn't love you any less because you've fallen flat on your face this week. And he doesn't love you more because you've been a, a saint this week. He loves you the same because your position doesn't change because you're in Jesus Christ, like Abraham, by faith alone. And thus, your works will not change. Now, if you look at that and you say, well, that's just awesome. I can live like I want to live. Then you don't understand justification by faith. But look at Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to notice what Paul does here. Now, we're looking at this disposition in Christ, justified, standing before God, in a perfect righteousness, not earned by works. Abraham knew he didn't earn it by works. And why? So that God would get all the glory for salvation. God will get all the glory for the work he does in the repenting and believing sinner. Let's begin in verse 3. And what I want you to do is pay attention uh, in verse 6, in verse 12, and in verse 14. And you're going to see how Paul has placed strategically in this wonderful Long sentence, one sentence in the, in the original of praise and, and adoration for salvation and for the work of redemption. This whole section, verses 3 through 14, it is about the work of redemption. It is about God's plan of salvation from eternity past, fleshed out in the life of his people. And I want you to know what is behind the motive and what is the end goal of all this work of salvation. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Do you see any single action in those verses by the sinner? Not a one. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, there's our first action, our first, the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Three times. Three times. And as this thing unfolds, like I said, this is one long sentence. It's like the Apostle Paul was so excited about the plan of salvation, he didn't know when to stop. He just kept going on and on and on, just over, overflowing with praise. And he says, listen, it's not by works. Abraham believed God, and thus he was justified. You're just like Abraham. I'm just like Abraham. It's not your works. It's all of God so that we can stand before him into the, in the glories of heaven and sing under the praise of his glory. It is all about him. And I'm so fearful in my own life that I make the Christian life too much about me. And not all about him. And Paul, in unfolding this wonderful doctrine of justification by faith, he obliterates the works-based person. He takes away us. And he sets on the, on, on the pillar this amazing grace of God that would take sinners and declare them righteous, not because of their works, but because of the works of his son. And the more that we understand what Christ has done in the gospel, the more that we understand who we are because of the gospel, and the more we live under the praise of his glory. I want you to look at one other place, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, about our position 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. So Paul would say to the Gentiles and primarily the Jews in the Roman church, um, where's the boasting? Where's the boasting? Abraham couldn't boast. You applaud Abraham as being the father, your father. Well, Abraham didn't boast because Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. Why? So that God would receive all the glory and praise. So the only boasting there would be would be the boasting in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. This is one of those very practical theological verses that you can live every day. And because of him, God the Father, you are in Christ or in Christ Jesus. I've mentioned this before. I'll challenge you again. Go through and read the Apostle Paul's letters. And circle in your Bible or write down every time that you find reference to in Christ, in Jesus... In Christ Jesus, in Him. Do that Bible study. And as you go through it, you'll have to stop and you'll be shouting with praise. Because you're going to find over 160 times Paul refers to what it means, is, what, it, what it defines a Christian. It's a person who doesn't make a profession of faith. It's the person who knows they're in Christ. In Christ is the definition of a Christian. And so do that study. You will be, you will be overwhelmed with joy when you find out what God the Father, and notice what Paul says in his Corinthian passage. Who put you in Christ? It wasn't your profession. It wasn't your good works. It wasn't your Abraham-like goodness. It says, of him 
are you in Christ Jesus? And notice what Jesus has become to us. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. There's a lot of the same theology here that, that there is in Romans 3, 21 through 4. Is that he says, God the Father has given us to Christ, and Christ has become to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. How's that played out in everyday life? Well, what's wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge applied. Wisdom is walking in the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is the ability to discern, the ability to make right decisions. And Paul says Jesus Christ has become that to you. He's become what you need to live wise in a very foolish world. He's also said that Christ has become our righteousness, and we're already talking about that. How do you silence the accuser? How do you silence the devil when he accuses you of being a sinner and, he, and he's right that you sin? How do you silence? You silence it by the breastplate of righteousness. Your heart is covered by the righteousness. And, and Paul would say that Christ has become our righteousness. So we can look at the devil and say, yeah, like Martin Luther used to say, yeah, you're right, devil. I am a great sinner, but I'm not your sinner. I'm God's sinner, and he's, claimed, he's declared me righteous. So see how practical this is? You silence the devil in your life and the accusing conscience that you have. You silence it by saying, yes, I am not what I should be, but I know I'm not what I was, and I stand before God with a righteousness not my own. And then what about sanctification? How's Christ being our sanctification uh, practical? Friends, you measure your growth as a Christian one way. How you're becoming like Christ. How much more you're becoming like Jesus. That's the way you measure spiritual growth. And that means in this, Christ has become our sanctification. Jesus prays in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Set them apart. So when you understand what God has done for you and in you by putting you in Christ, Jesus has set you apart and daily through the circumstances of ordinary life, he is making you more and more like himself even in your failings. He will take everything that happens in your life because what God starts, God finishes. And he will take everything, even the, the bad decisions, even the, you know, even the remorse, even the failings. He will take all of those and that will, begin, that will continue the process of making us more and more like himself. Thus, Christ is our sanctification. And then finally, we have this. He says that Christ is our redemption. Our redemption. What does that mean? That means, friend, that when you became a Christian, you've been bought. All of you. You no longer live by your desires. You no longer live by your will. You no longer live by your preferences. You no longer live by your plans. You live exclusively for the will of God. And you want to know something? That is the most joyous place to be. Under the yoke of Jesus Christ. Because he's your, redemp he's, 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 he's your redemption. And when you want to go against that, stop and go to the cross and remember the price of redemption. Remember what he did so that you could be his. And so when you, when you see this position, if we see this position that, that Paul is arguing for as a result of faith, is that it sets us in such a position of joy and of confidence because you didn't earn it. Let's go back to Romans chapter 4. You didn't earn it, and you couldn't earn it. 
And so Paul's argument on the first, in the first three verses of this is that Abraham simply believed God and God counted it all towards a righteousness that was not his, but that was his son's because Abraham looked to Christ as we do. I pray that God will open up our eyes to see our position in Jesus and that we will gauge our Christianity based on his performance, not ours. And that we'll live out of that position that doesn't change because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. That won't change because you're in a spiritual bad mood. That won't change because you snapped off at somebody when, and you have remorse over it. That does not change your justification. And from that position comes joy. And look at the verse 4 now. We're skipping verse 3. We'll go back to verse 3 here in a minute. But here's a second point about this position that Paul would, would have us to have with Abraham and David being the example. Is that our position is not earned by works. It's bestowed all by grace. You know, one of the dangers about saying this to you is that you know it. And what I don't want to happen in your life and in my life, because you know these things, you can sit there and just figuratively just yawn because you already know this the most dangerous thing in the christian life is is familiar truth that you lose the all factor of it is that when something is so familiar and that it doesn't move you anymore that is the first step to a lukewarm heart it's the first step to losing first love for jesus is when the familiar becomes so casual and that we're not moved by it and that leads to the second thing this position that we could not earn by works, it's given to us freely as a gift. It's not like God is reluctant to do this. And it's not like Jesus is pleading to a tyrant, God the Father, saying, God, please, I did this, please. The Father is not reluctant to give you this righteousness. And there's a lot of Christians who have a false concept of God as father and I understand that there's been many bad examples of earthly fathers that they built uh, their image of God the father from and and don't do that is it Jesus is not pleading is not trying to persuade God the father to give you this righteousness God the father freely and abundantly gives this as a gift verse 4 now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now, the implication there with the word gift, it goes back to chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We're going to get to Romans chapter 5. And I, I do want you to turn, turn there just now, verse 15 and 17. By the time we get there, you will forget we're there today. So, verse 15 and 17, what I want you to, as we read these verses, I want you to note the references to the free gift. How many times Paul, it seems, redundantly emphasizes this free gift. And as I was reading that, I would say, well, why? Why not just say it once, that it's a free gift? Why go over and over and over? Well, when you find repetition in the Bible, you need to pay attention to it. But in this case, I think there's a good reason. I think Charles Hodge uh, had a good saying along that line. Hodge said, quote, The passage ought to stand out as an outburst of gratitude for God's gift of his son, end quote. Look at verse 15 of, of Romans 5. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift. There's twice. By the grace of God that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift, there's a third time, is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, there's four. Following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift five times of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Five times in such a very short period of time. Why? Why the emphasis? So that we would see the benevolent heart of God. So that we would see the loving heart of God. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Do you know what one of the marks of a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit and a Christian who is walking in the Spirit? In Ephesians chapter 5, it says giving thanks in all things. One of the marks of a Christian who is filled with the Spirit is the Spirit of Thanksgiving. They just walk around and they live from the inside out with a spirit of thanksgiving. It's not just praying over three squares a day. It is actually coming along, coming and living a life in a spirit of thanksgiving that you find yourself in a, in a spontaneous life and attitude of thanksgiving. And if we look at justification by faith as simply a doctrine, a theology to believe, without connecting it to a devotion, then we're going to lose this, this free gift. We're going to lose the wonderful heart of God in His giving to us. The Bible is a love letter. God is love. He sent His, love, he sent his Son out of love. When we read the doctrine of justification of, uh, by faith, it should cause us to be overwhelmed with thanksgiving and deepen our ev- devotion for Christ so that our hearts are warmed by the theology I am so afraid I've already said this before already but I am so afraid that I know so much and that it lies in my head and it never inflames my heart and if you have a a head full of knowledge and you could expound the scriptures and you you can debate and discuss all the doctrines that there is And you can defend the truth, whether it be an apologetic way or a polemic way. If you can do that, but yet your heart is not worn with devotion, then it's all wood, hay, and stubble. The whole of theology and the whole of justification by faith is that it changed Martin Luther. Verse 5 of Romans 4 is the battle cry of the Reformation. And it wasn't just Martin Luther defending the faith. Martin Luther fell in love with God. He fell in love with God because it unlocked the freedom from his sin, the freedom of trying to earn God's favor. And so my prayer is for us is that we would read these doctrines and we would understand that the doctrine of justification by faith, illustrated by Abraham, illustrated by David, it is a free gift that is to inflame our hearts with love. Warm love to the God who gave us his son. Warm love who made his son a propitiation. 
warm our hearts to where we read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and we can barely hold back tears of joy because God so loved us. When he didn't have to, I know his nature is love, but he could have just left Adam and Eve to their sin and all humanity to their sin. And we could have lived our carnal, fleshly life of this world and died and faced a holy God who is a consuming fire. And the very first time that we see him is when he looks at us in his fierce anger and wrath and says, depart from me, I never knew you. Aren't you grateful for justification by faith? Because if you're a believer, you're never going to hear that. And you're never going to hear that, not because you earned it, because like Abraham, you can't. You're going to hear that because you received it as it truly is, a free gift. And I believe the emphasis that that Paul wants to make throughout Romans is that we would fall in love with God, is that we would fall, fall, fall in love with the God of doctrine, and that we wouldn't so love doctrine is that we would love the God of doctrine. And that we would use doctrine to open up the heart of God to us so that we can be those type of Christians where Jesus says, all people will know your mind by your love. Not by your soundness of truth, but by your love. Well, let's move on now to the second. So this is what we see in the first, uh, the first three or four verses of Romans chapter 4. We see that, that we are counted righteous like Abraham, because God declared it to be so. Because the believing sinner looks at Christ, in Christ alone on the cross, and he says, there's my propitiation. There's my redemption. There's my wisdom. There's my righteousness. There's my sanctification. And God says, your faith that I gave you to believe on my son, I declare you righteous before me, and nothing will ever separate you from that position. Not the devil not other people, not the world, not even yourself. And then as we understand that, we realize it's only because of the benevolent love of God. This free gift. So if you're, if you're out there today and you're trying to find God and you're trying to get right with God and you're trying to do it by religious works or you're thinking, I'm just a good person, let me tell you, please stop it. Please stop it. I don't say that to be cruel. I say that is because you are down a road of self-deception and folly. Is you can't get there from there. You have one way of getting right with God. And you have one way of passing his judgment. Is that when you stand before him. Is that you better have a robe of righteousness. That's not one that you, that you sowed. Because it will be filthy rags. You need to be able to stand before God. And look at him in his holy, holy, holy presence. And say... Him, Him, pointing to the Lord Jesus, the one whose righteousness you wear, gaining you that interest. And so then as a free gift and a position never changes, what do we see in the response? How should we respond to that? Let's look at Abraham again, verse 3. So what do we see from Abraham then? Our proper response to God's work of a righteousness given to us freely. The first one is this, is believe God for who He is. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, Jim, that's not very profound. And you're right, it's not. But look what we read here in verse 3. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. If you were to go out there and walk along the street and do a survey, or maybe it's a a hot day, maybe down by the beach, and ask a bunch of people, do you believe in God? You're probably going to get a lot of people that says, yeah, I believe in God. Those are the very people that if they died today, they would go to hell. 
Because there's a belief in God that does not save. A generic belief in God does not save. It says where Abraham believed God. Well, what did he believe about God? What did he believe that, that, that caused him to be the father of faith? Remember, James tells us that even the devils believe in God, but yet they shudder and they're not saved. If you recall a few weeks ago, we defined what true faith is. True faith, a true belief, it consists of three components. Knowledge, knowledge that is assent, assented to be true, and thirdly, a reliance upon that truth. You can have, a knowledge, you can have the knowledge and you can say, yeah, I believe it's true, but if you don't abandon yourself to that, then you don't have saving faith. Abraham believed God. He believed for who he is. Abraham, Abraham had confidence in God, his person. And we will go back and we can look and see many examples of that. Here's one. Look at verse, uh, verse 20 of chapter 4. And 21. And 22. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was called a friend of God. He believed in confidence that God was able to do what he said. And friend, that's where our beginning point is too. We must believe in Hebrews eleven six that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We're not going to take the time to read it, but read uh, Isaac and Abraham. Genesis 22. Imagine how this father felt. The Lord appears to him and says, I want you to go up in the morning to the mountain. And I want you to sacrifice your beloved son, Isaac. I wonder how he slept that night. Knowing that he had to kill his son. The battle was raging in his, his father's heart. No doubt. The battle was, are you going to believe and trust and honor God more than the protection of your son? Well, Abraham woke up this morning, and this is so profound. I'll paraphrase it, but read it in Genesis chapter 22, verse, the first five verses. Abraham, they go to the bottom of the mountain. God had said, I want you to go up there, and I want you to offer Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. This wasn't going to be a partial burning of Isaac. This was total. Slay your son. Abraham looks at his servants at the bottom of the mountain and says, wait here. My son and I are going to go up and make the sacrifice, and we will come back. We will come back. Abraham believed in the resurrection as he took Isaac up to the hill. Abraham believed God was able to raise the dead. Abraham believed God and placed that belief in, 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 in action because he acted upon the belief. And that's the difference, friends, is that you must believe who God is. And that belief will be tested by your obedience to what he says. A belief that just acknowledges God and just says, I believe in God. But there is no evidence of action associated with that. That is not true belief. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And he believed that what God had promised, God was able to do. And that leads to the second thing. Look at verse 5 of Romans 4. 
Not only did Abraham believe God for who he is, but he believed God for what he promises. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Is that you have to believe that God not only is, but that God does justify the ungodly. And he justifies the ungodly based on no performance of yours, but solely on the performance of his son. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, he's referring to Abraham. And to the one, it could be, and to Abraham who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Do you see what Abraham does? He believes in God, his person. Then he believes in what he promises. There's always that connection. We believe God in his character for the person, and because of his person, his character, we believe that what he, what he said he would do, he would do. I believe I'm justified before a holy God because God is trustworthy. God has given the testimony of his son. 1 John 5, uh, 9 tells us that we believe the testimony that God gave of his son. His, God the Father says, Jim, here's my testimony. I sent my son to be your propitiation. I sent my son to be your redemption. I sent my son to be your righteousness. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, then you will cast yourself and your eternity upon what I said and what I've done. You can sit here today and believe that God exists. And you can believe that God justifies the ungodly. But do you believe that God justifies you, the ungodly? That's the, that's the difference. And Abraham believed that he was justified because God promised if he believed, he would be justified. It's like Peter. Peter's in the boat and Jesus comes and Peter looks out and says, if it's really you, tell me, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. Now, Peter believed it was Jesus. And how do we know he believed it was Jesus? He got out of the boat. He got out of the boat. We don't give him a lot of credit because he sank. But I give him a lot of credit that he got out of the boat. He got out of the boat. He could have said, oh, I believe it's Jesus. And Jesus said, get out of the boat. Well, if he didn't get out of the boat, then he really didn't believe. And it's like us. You can believe that God justifies the ungodly and justifies the sinner by faith alone in Christ alone. You can believe that. But do you believe that for you personally? Do you believe that if you were the only sinner on this earth, that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death and rose from the dead, do you believe he did that for you personally? That's justification by faith. Our God is a personal God. He doesn't save communities. He saves individuals. Individuals who have come to him, like Abraham, knowing that works cannot earn righteousness, and knowing that unless God gives me what I cannot earn, I can't stand before him. And so Abraham believed God, and he believed that he was able to do what he said, and what did he say he would do? That he would be the just and the justifier to those who believe in Jesus. And so Abraham, he defines for us our position before God, Righteous, not because he earned it, but because he willingly received it as a gift provided by a benevolent God. Our response to it, believe God and his character. Believe believe the trustworthiness of who he is. He gave a testimony, he gave a witness, and God can't lie, he gave the witness, believe that. 
and then believe like Abraham what he promised. And what he promised is that you would be justified if you simply believe what he says of his son. And may God help us. And if you're here today and you haven't believed on the son for a righteousness not of your own, your opportunity is ever before you. Remember, your religion is not going to get you anywhere. Your good works, your performance is not going to get you anywhere. You have to lean exclusively and believe on the one whose performance counts. And it counts before a holy God who said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great and wonderful gift of justification by faith. Thank you that it is counted to us, not by merit, but as a gift. May you reinflame our hearts with your love that we would live in a spirit of thanksgiving all the day long because of your great love in giving us what we could never earn on our own. May we exalt Christ. May we find the theology of salvation being one that makes our hearts tender and devotional to the God of our, of our theology. And Lord, for those who have yet to come to Christ, please show them that they can't earn their way. And help them, not, help them to not dismiss the most important question that they ever will have to face. What happens to me after I die? Is it, It's inevitable. They're going to die. Help them to see that there's a judgment. And that the only way to pass that judgment is by a righteousness clothed upon them that is not of their making. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these wonderful truths. May we learn to walk and live our lives justified always looking unto Jesus, who is all we need for now and eternity. In Christ's name, amen.